Hi everyone, I'm Rob, and this is Two Bye Guys. And in case you didn't know by now, our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor of the show. I should know, podcasting remotely can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Zencaster's all-in-one web-based solution makes the process quick and painless, the way it should be. I chose Zencaster before they approached me, so that's how you know this is completely authentic. I did a ton of research, I looked into a lot of options, and Zencaster was the best. The main reason was that they record all the sound and video locally, not over the internet. This makes things really easy and very secure, and the audio and video quality is always great. The other day, I was recording an episode that's going to come out in a few weeks, and my guest computer died, and she disappeared all of a sudden. And I was pretty scared that the entire interview was going to get lost. This was near the end of the interview. But it turned out Zencaster had recorded everything, downloaded everything, done a backup, and everything was fine. Nothing was lost. Same thing with the Court Vox interview last episode. We had some internet issues. We were out of sync a little. There was a delay. It was kind of weird. But then once I did the automatic Zencaster post-production, everything was perfect. Everything synced. It sounded like we were in the same room. None of the internet issues were a problem because it's recording each of us locally and then it puts it together. I don't know how that algorithm works, but it's been working really well and saving me a ton of time editing. And I want you to have the same easy experience I do. So if you go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and enter promo code to buy guys, you will get 30% off your first three months. And it's already pretty cheap to begin with. So 30% off your first three months. It's even cheaper. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com, promo code to buy guys. It's time to share your story with Zencaster. Hello and welcome to Two Bye Guys. I'm so excited for today's episode. We have a true, another true BiCon guest, somebody that I've been aware of ever since I just started realizing I was bisexual. It started coming out, and I'm very excited to have him on the podcast today. Today we have H. Sharif Williams on the show, also known as Dr. Harukuti. He is an artist, sexologist, social entrepreneur, educator, and activist whose work operates at the intersection of race, culture, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm very interested in that intersection. He is the founder of the Center for Culture, Sexuality, and Spirituality, the CEO of Culture, Sex, and Spirit, governor of the Association of Black Sexologists and Clinicians, executive producer of the documentary No Homo, No Hetero, and editor of Recognize, The Voices of Bisexual Men, which is how I first became aware of his work and what I want to ask him about, as well as Sexuality, Religion, and the Sacred, Bisexual, Pansexual, and Polysexual Perspectives. His work has been published in various academic and popular publications, including the Journal of Bisexuality, the Journal of Black Sexuality and Relationships, African Voices, Huffington Post, LGBT HealthLink, Bi Magazine, Black Genders and Sexualities, among many others. Harukuti has a master's in education and is a doctor of philosophy with a PhD in human and organizational systems. He is currently a faculty member in the undergraduate programs of Goddard College and the graduate program in applied theater at City University of New York, plus a lot of other things that we'll get into. That was the short version. So welcome to Two Bye Guys, Dr. Harukuti. Thank you for uh, inviting me, for having me. 
Yeah, it's really a pleasure to meet you because we'll talk about the book later, but that the book was one of maybe the first two or three books about this stuff that I read. And it was the first one that was like many different perspectives on a similar theme. And it mm. really helped me to just see how widespread the experience and diverse the experiences, but all kind of united by this mm-hmm. core belief that I had been ashamed of for so long. Anyway, mm. I could I could gush about it forever, but it was really, really such a helpful book for me to hear from so many voices and to recognize that in myself. Okay, I'll stop fanboying. Let's get <laughs> let's get to you. Um, <laughs> I always like to start by asking people, what pronouns do you use and how do you identify? And then that's the doorway to the conversation. So we'll start sure, there. Sure. Uh, so in terms of pronouns, I respond to any and all pronouns. Uh, I am a Bodeme in the traditions of the Dagra people of Ghana and Burkina Faso. Uh, Bodeme are um, people who in the West we would consider to uh, um, to be um, sexually fluid and gender uh, and gender fluid or outside of the gender binary and the homo hetero binary. Um, and uh, I came to recognize myself as a Bodeme um, through working with Dr. Maladoma Somme, uh, who was a teacher of mine. He recently actually um, transition to the world of the ancestors uh, in uh, December of 2021. Uh, and uh, Maladoma is someone who introduced to the West this concept of gatekeeper, which in the Dagra, uh, in the Dagra community um, uh, is called Bodeme. So I respond to all pronouns. Uh, and um, in terms of uh, my, uh, my sexuality, my sexuality, uh, is very much tied to my spirituality. Uh, and so um, Bodeme also identifies and represents that um, that aspect of, of me as well in terms of my uh, my sexuality. Interesting. I have not heard that word. That's interesting. Yeah, the um, what's interesting what's also really, really powerful is that uh, Taylor and Francis recently uh, made free to the public. A, uh, an article that I wrote about my experiences working with Maladoma and understanding the concept of Bodeme. Um, so now that uh, that article is free uh, and available to the uh, to the public. So all you have to do is uh, do a search for Bodeme in Harlem, um, spelled B-O-D-E-M-E, uh, and you can uh, read more about uh, the, uh, the concept of Bodeme, as well as uh, how I came to learn what it uh what it means to be a bodeme both for me and in the world cool i found a lot of stuff to read this week preparing for this interview but that was not one of the things i found so i'm gonna have to read that later and we'll post it in the show notes so we fixed a little audio issue hopefully your audio will sound better now and we'll continue but um that's really interesting about bodeme so like do you, I mean, I'll have to read that article and learn more. Mm-hmm. Do you prefer to use that label now as opposed to bisexual or queer? Or like, did that shift for you or does it mean something similar? Or what do you prefer to talk about with people? No, I, I, um, I use um, Bodeme as an, uh, as an authentic and accurate representation of, of my experience and my reality. Uh, and because it comes from an, uh, an African and African-centered framework. 
uh, and uh, as a person of African descent who is deeply committed to living in my truth in a way that is that is culturally relevant and 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 responsive to uh, my uh, my culture as a as a person of African descent. So I use that that term. But I'm also someone cool. who lives in the West, and so I uh, I choose um, to use. Um, uh, words and concepts that are more familiar to folks in the West. So I will use the term bisexual as, uh, as a as a shorthand um, to place myself um, in in those kinds of conversations um, in in the United States, and as well as a political um, um, as a political choice um, because uh, bisexuals face prejudice, discrimination. Um, and uh, um, and oppression, marginalization um, from within the quote unquote LGBT um, as, as space, as well as um, from um, from cisgender uh, and heterosexual folks. So, uh, using that term bisexual politically, I think, is important um, um, for that uh, for the for that purpose as well. Cool. Very interesting. Okay. I have more questions about that, but I'm curious also to get into like, when did you realize you were bisexual? Um, and like, mm-hmm. what was mm-hmm. your development like there and, and how, when did you start coming out and what was that like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, I knew what I liked and what gave me pleasure long before I knew how people, um, use language to define that. So, uh, I was um, uh, having sex um, when I was in first grade with uh, my best friend, uh, who uh, was a, a cisgender uh, boy, and with uh, a, um, uh, a a daughter of a friend of my mother's who would come over after school uh, and wait for her mother to get home from work. Uh, and she and I developed uh, um, a sexual relationship. And she was a cisgender, uh, a cisgender girl. So uh, I knew though I knew what my um, body felt was pleasurable, and what my desires um, told me that I uh, I wanted uh, and liked. Way before I came to understand that people called that bisexual, or people had these these kinds of labels, um, and as I began to get acquainted with how society viewed um, same-sex desire, uh, I internalized uh, the, um, the stigma associated with same-sex desire. Uh, and so for a number of years in my, child, uh, in my childhood, I policed and uh, silenced uh, my same-sex desires up until uh, maybe high school when I um, then had a boyfriend again. Uh, and, um, uh, but I was still conflicted. Well, I was mm-hmm. conflicted. I wasn't conflicted when I was a kid, but <laughs> in high school, I was conflicted ab- about my same-sex desire because of all of the internalized prejudice and, and stigma um, that, um, that I had done um, prior to. Uh, and so th- from then through college, um, I was in a process of, being okay with the with the same sex experiences I had had um, um, prior to that, but not really acting on my same sex desire uh, in the uh, in the moment at uh, at that time. 
It wasn't until uh, I, I um, entered a relationship with a, a girlfriend uh, and and uh, told her that I had had this past sexual experience um, um, uh, in my life, and I did that with with uh, with girlfriends often. If I was serious about them, I told them, "Oh yeah, I'd had uh, I had had experience uh, uh, with with males before." Mm-hmm. And she was the first uh, the first girlfriend I had to say so to say so. What does that mean for you now? Mm. And I told her I didn't uh, I didn't know what it meant for me. Uh, because I didn't allow myself the space to explore those uh, those feelings and, and desires. And so she said, well, I think you should. I think you should find out. Uh, and that led us to opening up our relationship and me exploring that aspect of myself. So in my early 20s, uh, I was uh, opening up um, to more of myself. Uh, and then uh, later... Uh, came to understand this this word called bisexual and and to apply it to uh, to my experiences. That's a that's a nice uh, relationship you had, especially such at a pretty young age. That's kind of special that someone would yeah say that yeah yeah yeah. And uh, we were together for ten years. Oh wow! Uh, and it um, uh, we co raised two children together uh, that she had from a previous relationship uh, and. Um, it wasn't it, it, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Uh, it was definitely challenging, and um, uh, it it required both of us to do a lot of work on ourselves um, to uh, to deal with our own insecurities, to deal uh, to deal with fears of abandonment, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, deal with jealousy, uh, and also to deal with self acceptance mm-hmm. uh, and self determination. So it, it, it was something that I definitely value and appreciate. Uh, and at the same time, it was work. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And so was that like kind of the first time you had had an open, like ex- explicitly open relationship? And did it work for you? Do you still do that? Or, or did you prefer monogamy or something else? I, I'm polyamorous, uh, so uh, I have practiced monogamy throughout my uh, throughout my life, uh, and I would say in the last maybe twenty years or so, I have come to recognize that I am polyamorous by by nature. And again, when I said that my sexuality and spirituality are interconnected, um, the the polyamory is a part of that. That I believe that. Love is uh, is something that in our society is commodified through cap- is mm-hmm. we have a capitalist approach to love and intimacy, uh, and so monogamy represents a um, a private ownership relationship with love, a private ownership re- uh, and private property approach to uh, relationship and intimacy. And as a um, as a communalist, I believe that uh, it is ethical for me to share love, intimacy with with others, and to do so in a communal, cooperative uh, um, uh, uh, way. You know, uh, we talk n- nowadays about solidarity economies and mutual aid uh, um, uh, systems, and uh, over the last um, again twenty years. I've been invested in taking that approach to 
relationality to how we <laughs> form relationships with people how we how we share love how we share intimacy how we share the erotic um mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's a definite part of my my sexuality and spirituality and it's also related to myself as a healer uh and sacred whore that um i um uh, i use my my gifts as audrey lord said I use my sexual gifts in service of my vision of a more just, equitable, uh, and liberated world. I love that. Did you say sacred whore? I did say sacred whore, yes. <laughs> I have m multiple other things to respond to, but can you just uh, explain what, what you mean by that too? <laughs> yeah, so what sacred whore, uh, and I didn't coin that term, but uh, for me, what, uh, uh, what I mean by sacred whore is that uh, as a... A uh, comedic priest, a priest that uh, was initiated into the traditions of ancient Egypt. As a comedic priest, I'm I'm connected with the with the practice of being in conversation with and relationship to um, the various aspects of divinity. One such aspect of divinity in comedic spirituality uh, is Hetheru. Hetheru is considered. Uh, I'll do a shorthand uh, um, explanation, but it is the goddess of love and pleasure and abundance. And so as a, a keeper of the shrine of Heteru, uh, I provide people in the community with access to Heteru's gifts uh, and Heteru's wisdom um, uh, um, in themselves through my engagement with them as a body worker and uh, uh, and healer through a uh, as a somatics practitioner, um, uh, as a sex educator, uh, and um, as somebody who um, uh, provides um, access to the erotic and sensuality and even sexual pleasure as a healing modality, uh, as well as as a form of knowing and coming to know oneself and uh, and the universe. So that's where your name comes from, Haru. Kuti. So Heru Kuti is the name. My namesake is a, is another divine principle uh, in comedic spirituality. And Het Heru and Heru Kuti uh, um, ha, um, have had uh, a relationship in the um, stories and mythologies uh, of comedic spirituality. Uh, so there is that there is some connection there. But you you honed in on that that part of the of both names Heru. And mm -hmm. Heru literally means the face of God. Uh, so uh, hmm. Herukuti means the face of God at sunrise and sunset. Het Heru means the house uh, um, that holds the face of God. So there are some, like if you're if you're sitting in the house that holds the face of God, <laughs> that means that you have allowed that sunrise and sunset, that horizon to come in and enter that house and enter you and warm mm -hmm. you and enliven you and heal you. I, I love that. It's fascinating. And it's like, I, I really couldn't agree more that this, that our sexuality is a really sacred and fundamental thing. And yet we're taught so often the opposite and we're taught that it's this shameful thing or this private thing. And so what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. And yet is also kind of this radical 
idea. It's actually an ancient idea. Uh, um, it's something that um, people in the global south, indigenous people, African people, and um, people in uh, in Asia had, and also people in Europe before Christianity held as a as a reality. Hmm. But because of the rise of and the dominance of um, uh, Catholicism. Uh, and uh, and the rise of settler colonialism and imperialism around the world, um, people were driven away from the, those concepts and those ways of being. Huh. Uh, and and there are a number of us who are trying to reclaim uh, that heritage and that legacy. I identify as Polly also, even though I couldn't even see that as an option for so long and yeah we're we're taught like this monogamy this thing but like it seems so natural polyamory to me and brief story like my younger sister is adopted i'm a biological child of my parents my sister's adopted and when we adopted her i didn't really i wasn't really into the idea as a little nine-year-old um, and my parents explained to me that, like, you know, we don't have this much love and now we're going to split it like we have this much love for you and then it's going to grow and your love is going to grow to expand to this new family member. And so I learned at that age that love is this thing that grows. It's not a finite mm-hmm. Thing. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that's that conversation is why I'm poly today, because mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. made that made sense to me at the time. And still does what what an uh, what an anti-capitalist approach that your parents took to you to explain uh what they were basically doing was they were disrupting the scarcity model right that that you that you were holding yeah you know that right. that leads us into into a supply and demand competitive um fight um for uh, an assumed scarce resource and your parents said no uh, um, that that's not the case. Love is actually uh, uh, infinite and, yeah. and expansive and generative, powerful. It's really quite a special thing, love, and it really a holy, sacred thing that it's that it is infinite in that way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I might steal that sacred whore as a new identity <laughs> label for myself. <laughs> okay, so I'm, so then I'm curious. So you you kind of had this relationship with this woman who opened your open things up and you had these experiences. How did you like kind of go from that to the activist work you did and your career mm-hmm. and your art? Like you, how, how did you decide to mm-hmm. integrate all that into your work and how did you get started with that work? Yeah, so activism is kind of like a family business uh, for uh, the mo- uh, my mother's side of my family. Uh, my um, maternal grandparents met in the American Labor Party um, my maternal grandfather was a tenants' rights um, organizer and, and, and activist. Uh, my mother uh, was a member of the Black Panther Party uh, and also a union organizer uh, with uh, 1199. Uh, so I was birthed into a family that believed that we should be in service uh, and that any injustice required us to um, to work in solidarity and in cooperation with others, in collaboration with others, um, to address that injustice. 
And so as I grew in my own understanding of myself and my sexuality, I saw what biphobia was. I saw what monosexism uh, was. I saw the ways in which um, bisexuality and bisexuals were marginalized uh, in LGBT um, spaces. Uh, and I already knew that in cisgender and heterosexual spaces, uh, uh, bisexuality along with homosexuality and uh, uh, and being trans was was marginalized and stigmatized. So the activists in me uh, uh, was already, pro- okay, <laughs> this is an injustice. We, we need to address this. And so I started to work to unpack why that was and how I could personally contribute to it. So I'm a writer, I'm an artist. Um, so I started linking up with other writers, other artists, other um, scholars, um, the first being um, Lorraine Hutchins. Uh, and we co-edited uh, the uh, that special issue of the Journal of Bisexuality that you um, that you reference that dealt with bisexuality and spirituality. Uh, then later, uh, I found out that um, that Robin Oaks uh, was uh, had a call for contributions um, to a, a a book project that would deal with uh, bisexual men. And so I reached out to Robin and said, do you have any men who are working on this with you? And Robin said, um, no. And I, uh, um, I think um, that would be uh, that would be great. And so we started to talk and develop a relationship. Uh, and out of that relationship um, uh, came the decision to collaborate and co-edit Recognize, um, the, um, the book that, uh, um, that uh, was so um, instrumental in your own coming to to, uh, to embrace your, your full self. Um, so started to do things like that. I um, connected with activists that were organizing policy, public policy uh, briefings at the White House. So I went the first year um, as a expert, a, a content expert, uh, and then uh, later um, became a co-organizer of, uh, of one of the White House um, uh, briefings on bisexual public policy. Um, we co-authored a set of policy recommendations at the federal level um, that was later published by the Movement Advancement Project. Um, so you know, it was just about, in the Black community, we say, get in where you fit in. And, and, and I think that that so speaks to sexual fluidity as well. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I got in where I, where I, where I fit in. And so that's how I became an activist um, dealing with bisexual um, policy issues and and bisexual uh, visibility and liberation. Cool. Awesome. I I have more questions about some of the activism, but since you mentioned the book, I want to ask a little bit about the book. And, And the book was like, really, I think something that helped me so much as I was coming out was you know, not just reading like a study or the Kinsey stuff, but hearing many different experiences from different people. So this book did that for me. And also going to by request meetings in New York City, both of those things, I had this experience of like, oh, this thing I thought was crazy in my head, actually many different people of many different backgrounds think the same thing. So it must not be as crazy as I think. And you, you write in the book uh, at the very beginning, this thing of like, 
you know something in yourself, but if you don't see it in the world, you can't recognize it. And really Mm -hmm. that word recognize, we have to see ourselves in, in the world to figure out who we are and what is going on. Yeah, the, there's a, a African concept called Mbutu, uh, which is a, um, a Bantu word, uh, word from Southern Africa that loosely translates into I am because we are. Hmm. I am because we are. Hmm. And so it, 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 it speaks to that, that truth, the reality that you were speaking of, that my coming to know myself is so interdependent and interwoven with my relationship with the world and my ability to to have the world speak back to me in uh, in ways that uh, allow me to recognize myself and to recognize my position in the world uh, and to then come to know who and what I am. Uh, and so the the book recognized was so important. Um, to us as we were as we were um, developing it um, to have those multiple perspectives uh, because we we recognize that uh, bisexuality is an umbrella for a lot of different journeys mm-hmm. yeah, that yeah. we're all walking the, uh, um, similar paths uh, uh, under that umbrella uh, and uh, and we can have some similar experiences but there's also such diversity and complexity uh, that we needed to have uh, an intergenerational uh, approach so that there are people in there in their teens and there are people in, in their in their 70s um, uh, writing about their experiences we need we want to have a global um, perspective right. so uh, um, although there there are um, mostly works from people in the United States. Uh, we have people uh, represented, bisexual men represented uh, in, uh, all over the world, in various parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, cisgender bisexual men and transgender bisexual men. So we wanted to, to really underscore that just because you meet one bisexual and one bisexual man doesn't mean you understand fully what what uh, being a bisexual man is. And also for bisexual men, there is a a universe of bisexual masculinities, mm-hmm. and and so you're you're able to then find where you are located in that universe right. and connect up and recognize that. Oh, okay. Yeah, if I can recognize myself, I can recognize you, and you can recognize yourself. You can recognize me, and we we can build that uh, um, that that interlocking system of recognition and empowerment. Right, exactly. I, it's beautiful, and I think the book kind of showed me at at the time I was just coming out, like all the possibilities for me. Like to me, even at that time, the word "bi" was a very narrow definition in my head, and this kind of expanded it. Oh, you could, I could be like this person. I could be like that person. Oh, I could be a little bit of all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of great essays in it. Two of them are yours, which I want to ask you, or just mention at least, because I reread them and there's a couple really powerful, beautiful things in them. You wrote one essay about um, going to a free clinic to get 
tested for HIV and other um, STDs. And you talk about going in there and seeing people in the waiting room and everyone, you kind of know what everyone's there for, but nobody talks about it. Everyone was silent. And you write that you didn't want to break up the anonymity by like asking where to go or who to check in with. And then, and then you wrote something that I read it and I was like, yeah, that makes so much sense, but I can understand how like, the, the you in that moment is kind of blocked from seeing it or, or acting on it. You wrote, you didn't want to break up the anonymity or talk to anyone. To do so would be to confront the humanity of our lives. We have desires, emotions, feelings for other human beings. We have sex with these human beings we desire, love, feel for. And we have fears and concerns about our health as a result of those loves and desires. It's like, it just couldn't be more straightforward, fundamentally true, and totally like good, like a good, positive mm-hmm. things. We have these loves and desires. And then, yeah, we need to talk to doctors about it because of the practical realities. And yet in this instance and in so much of life where we keep that in and we silence ourselves because there's so much shame. So I don't know. Do, can you talk about that mm-hmm. or do yeah. you want to tell the rest yeah. of the story? Well, I mean, in in writing that piece, what what I um, what I wanted to do was both humanize and particularize. So, in the humanizing, is to recognize that bisexual men are no different than any other human being in terms of the needs for food, clothing, shelter, security. Uh, um, connection, community, those kinds of things. <laughs> uh, we f- we seek those things out and we uh, um, engage those things differently than somebody who's not a bisexual man, but we still have those needs and, the, uh, um, uh, and those desires. And so we are just as deserving in that humanity of being appreciated and valued as anyone else. Uh, and then there's the the particular part of it. And that, that speaks to what, what intersectionality talks about, that Black feminist uh, um, framework uh, called intersectionality, that the social identities that we carry because of our membership in, 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 certain, in, cer- in certain social groups, so bisexuals, um, working class people or poor people or uh, um, black folks, what have you, that the interlocking social identities we carry in a society that is oppressive makes our journey to meet our needs more or less difficult. Mm-hmm. That we have advantages or disadvantages imposed upon us by the society that particularize our experience of love and care and desire and uh, food and clothing and shelter. Um, so yeah, so that's what I was trying to do in that moment. And um, as an artist uh, and as a writer, one of the things that I, uh, I tend to do is as I'm living life, I'm always observing. So I, I get to then 
reflect on what it means in this moment. So yeah, I'm in, you know, I'm going into a, um, a, a testing center and I'm dealing with my own stuff around, okay, did, uh, have I been exposed to something? Did I contract some, all of that other kind of thing, the shame, the guilt, the, this, the, that, the curiosity, the fear or that, but I'm also an artist and writer who's, who's watching myself in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. And so I, I, you know, I could be in that space and be like, whoa, I don't know what the heck I'm supposed to go now that I'm in this room. All of these people are here, uh, but, you know, nobody's really looking at each other. Everyone's silent. And, okay, I'm not going to break this up, but I need to figure out how I'm going uh, to navigate the situation. And then the artist in me, the artist writer in me is like, like ooh, okay, what were y'all all doing in that moment? What did that mean? <laughs> and, 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 and how can I represent that? for others in my work uh, in ways that uh, bring those questions and, uh, and those reflections to them about their own experiences. Yeah. I identify with that as a writer and artist always like I'm experiencing life and also always thinking about how to represent those experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I also want to ask, it's kind of related and it's also on the, it's black history month right now, but when this podcast comes out and, uh, and so I want to ask about that experience and like, um, you wrote about Frank Ocean coming out well i don't know if he actually used the word bi but he talked about his experiences with men and women and he was kind of specific about the language he used right you wrote about that but you also wrote he he said um i feel like a free man and you wrote about how that's different than saying i am free and how that there's this painful truth for black men about a dominating culture that expends incredible amounts of time, money, and energy controlling and policing our bodies and the way we decide to use them. Um, so I'm curious, like, could you explain what, why that was important to you? Why I feel like a free man was so, you know, such an interesting choice of how to phrase that? Yeah, you know, again, art, uh, you know, artist, writer, so language uh, is, uh, is important, uh, to me and, and does things to, uh, 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 to me. Uh, and so when I, you know, I'll do a close reading of something, I said, oh, okay, that's meaningful. That, that feel rather than am, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's tied historically. So the sanitation workers strike, uh, in, uh, in Memphis and in, in Chicago using the, the placard, I am a man. Right. These were black working class workers holding these placards in their protests. I am a man. Well, if you think about if you if you are already recognized as a man in society, you don't actually need to hold a placard. Right. It's because you are not recognized as a man, as a as a full human being that you have to then uh, uh, or you're choosing to represent that black lives matter. The reason why people say Black Lives Matter is because Black lives don't matter in the society. If they did, you wouldn't need to say it. Uh, And so being a Black bisexual man in a society of settler colonialism, imperialism, white supremacy, capitalism, and cis-heteropatriarchy, in a society that only believes your, your value is tied to the profit that you can make for others, 
the benefit that you can make for others. What then does it mean to be free? What then does it mean to be self-determined? What then does it mean to, to claim something for yourself? That's a very, very powerful, powerful act to claim something for yourself. Mm-hmm. And whether that means claiming the desires and the loves that you, that you have, whether it means claiming your capacity to be in relationship with people regardless of their gender, whether it means to claim the, the experience of pleasure that doesn't conform to the box that the society has put you in. That, that, that's, a, that's a really, really powerful act. Uh, and so uh, part of uh, my work, uh, particularly over the last uh, maybe seven years, has been has been to build space with black bisexual men uh, uh, and, and bisexual plus so all of the uh, uh, all of the folks under that uh, all of uh, under that um, uh, umbrella we say the no labels folks the um the uh pansexual the polysexual the uh, um sexually fluid folks all of those uh, folks to 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 build space in which we can heal from the traumas uh, um, that we've experienced, the racial, sexual, uh, and gender violence that we've experienced, to recognize each other, that Mbutu concept, Mm -hmm. uh, to be in brotherhood with each other, uh, and to think about how we contribute to the Black liberation struggle, how how we can contribute to Black community to our families and neighborhoods um, in an authentic way, in a way that is uh, um, is indigenous and responsive to our cultural values, uh, and uh, which are different than uh, um, than those in other communities. So, for example, coming out, coming out isn't isn't something that is uh, uh, an indigenous cultural uh, practice to Black folks. Um, we are more about inviting in, hmm. you know, as people who uh, who had uh, um, who had colonists and settlers and slavers come into our community and kidnap people and rape people and 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 and, and hold them hostage and force them into labor is really important to us about who we invite in. So we talk about. Uh, uh, inviting in, inviting people into one's truth, inviting people into uh, uh, one's full self. And not everyone deserves to be invited in. So you don't have to tell everybody <laughs> your sexuality because not right. everyone is deserving of that and it will, it can put you at risk. So those are the kinds of things that we've been working on and I've been in, involved in over the last uh, uh, several years uh, in terms of Black, bi plus masculinities and manhood. Cool. That's awesome. So is that like, is you run the Black Lotus Project with Jay Christopher, who our first podcast guest ever? Is that correct? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So Jay Christopher, um, who uh, uh, who actually now is Jay Christopher Dadafumi, 
he uh, is uh, one uh, one of the co-founders with me of um, the Black Lotus Project, which is a part of a larger initiative uh, of the No No Homo No Hetero Initiative, which we we co-founded with uh, with David J. Cork. Cool. And were were you involved with By Request at some point too, in New York? I uh, I definitely attended uh, um, uh, a few meetings of By Request. Um, but I, I, I was not a regular attendee. Cool. Yeah. That was my regular, uh, I'm, I guess I'm curious, like, I'm curious what kinds of conversations that can exist in black Lotus project. I mean, you kind of talked about it already, but it's like, to me, it's kind of like, I can understand how like that unique experience needs to be discussed. Whereas like, if I start a meeting of white bisexuals, we would probably just talk about being bisexual because the white privilege is often invisible to most people. Mm-hmm. Really, the only times I've, the only containers I've found to talk to other white people about white supremacy and white privilege have been specifically for that. Like I took a class on defecting mm. from supremacy. Mm. We, we, we really have to be targeted and directed to talk about it because it's so invisible. At least it was to me. And really like, my male privilege, my white privilege, my straight privilege too, were very invisible to me in many ways until I recognized my bisexuality. Mm. I understood that oppression and that shame and the structures that kept me from realizing that. And then when I started coming out, it helped me connect to these and understand these other forms of oppression. But I think, you know, I'm, I feel lucky I had that experience of of coming out and realizing I was bi because it did connect me in that way. But, you know, many, many people with the privilege, it's invisible forever. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious yeah, yeah, how, yeah. how those spaces, you know, how they were different in your experience. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I think the difference is, um, as you said, is the recognition of the pain, trauma and violence of settler colonialism, imperialism, white supremacy, and uh, capitalism, and cis heteropatriarchy on uh, on the South. So folks who are racialized as white experience significant levels of trauma and violence from that system. Uh, but they, they carry the intergenerational trauma uh, of invisibilizing the, uh, uh, that violence. That many <laughs> folks racialized as white, uh, their ancestors became white at the expense of their ethnic identity. So before they were white, you know, they were a part of a particular ethnic tradition. They were Italian. They were Greek. They were Irish. They were, uh, um, you know, they they had the a particular ethnic identity. I oftentimes talk about uh, um, this with folks racialized as white and comparing it in, in uh, using the metaphor of, che- of cheese. So if you think about American cheese, American cheese what was designed to be uh, uh, was designed to be uh, um, homogenized, was designed to be uh, um, non non imposing, non threatening. Uh, acceptable to the greatest amount of people. You could use it far and wide. (laughs) But if you compare the taste of American cheese to the the ethnic cheeses that have have been produced around the world, talk about a Gouda, a goat cheese, a Gruyere, you know, a mozzarella, like all of the, like (laughs) that... 
you know, it, it's a, yeah. it's it's oh, yeah. different. There's a there's a soul, right? There's a soul to that cheese that isn't in American cheese. Right? Yeah. And so, folks whose uh, um, whose ancestors became white, in part, um, they had to lose their soul and their spirit to do that. Mm-hmm. In order to in order to uh, um, become a part of the system of whiteness and receive the the privileges of whiteness in the society, but that yeah. came at a significant cost. And right. so I I encourage folks racialized as white to actually have those conversations with each other. So what would it mean if there was a decidedly uh, um, race conscious? bisexual group of folks racialized as white who began to unpack what it means to be bisexual at those intersections. And so that's what we do in Black Lotus Project is that we're unpacking what it means for us to live at these intersections, given the, the, uh, uh, the structural violence that, that we face. Right. That's fascinating. And it's actually kind of really clarifying for me too to put that into context. Cause like I'm Jewish and my ancestor, my grandparents and great grandparents are from Eastern Europe, Ukraine. And I didn't even realize until pretty recently that that is an ethnicity. Like to me, it was a religion, but I'm a white person born in America. And, and, but the intergenerational trauma from that and from probably having to um, to hide your identity and nor- and ma- and fit in, uh, especially through World mm-hmm. War II and the Holocaust, is like that definitely affected my family. It definitely affected mm. me in ways that were invisible. Like, you know, I had this very like, you should fit within the lines of society. Like, don't take too many risks. Don't be out there. Mm-hmm. And all of that contributed to why I didn't come out as bi or didn't realize until later in life. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, all of those things are so like the, the fact that the Judaism was uh, something that could intersect with other, with my bisexuality was invisible to me mm-hmm. until pretty recently. Uh, but it's very and connected. It, and, it, and when we, and when uh, uh, we have more of those revelations, we build the foundation for solidarity. We build the foundation to be in alliance with each other uh, in the dismantling of these systems of oppression that are doing such harm to, uh, uh, to all of us. I have like a million questions and we're never going to get to all of them today. I, I, I can tell I can talk to you for like hours. Maybe you'll have to come back. I say that to everyone. Um, but I, <laughs> but, but this leads me, I, I want to ask, cause like I, it leads me into your artwork and your vision as an artist. Cause like, I think I've, I am a TV writer and like, you know, I want to make movies and stuff. And for a long time, I think I, was kind of politically progressive, but like didn't really have so much of a mission. And in the last few years, as I've come out, my mission has crystallized and it's really become what you're saying is like using my identity to connect with all oppressed, marginalized groups and really unite in solidarity to, to have affect political change. Right. So I'm curious, like you're, you're a playwright, you're a poet, uh, you're an artist, like, do you have a kind of mission with your work overall or is it project by project or like, and how does your identity affect your artwork? 
So as an artist, uh, I am informed by uh, the ideas of both Nina Simone and Tony Cade Bambara. Uh, Nina Simone said, um, what else uh, um, can an artist do but reflect the times? And, and that that is the artist's duty, is to reflect the times. Tony K. Bambara talked about the artist as a cultural worker um, who makes revolution irresistible. Uh, and so that th those two ideas inform me as an artist. I am reflecting the times uh, and um, making revolution irresistible uh, in, in my work. And that's whether I'm uh, um, uh, writing poetry or um, uh, producing documentary film or writing and producing uh, uh, plays or doing performance art. That's, that's, what, that, that's, what I, that's at the heart of my work. Some of my work deals with bisexuality. Um, some of it deals with, with sexuality more broadly. All of it deals with uh, questions ar um, around uh, racism. Uh, and uh, and all of it uh, deals with culture, uh, the the ways in which communities of people interacting with their environment, living in their world, um, develop practices and ways of being um, that help them to navigate life and to um, to live uh, as uh, as fully as they can. So yeah, so that that's what undergirds uh, my practice as an artist. Awesome. Um, and I mean, I could ask a million questions about this, but we'll, we have we don't have too much time. But can you tell us about No Homo, No Hetero, the documentary that you are producing and where what's what where that is? Sure. So uh, No Homo, No Hetero, um, the, the documentary uh, is something that I uh, conceived of, I think, in like, what, 2016, maybe. Uh, and uh, I met uh, David J. Cork through um, J. Christopher Dadafumi's uh, previous uh, uh, group called Mankind, um, which was for um, Black men uh, who were uh, sexually fluid. Uh, and uh, uh, David J. Cork is uh, actor, director, producer. Uh, and so I reached out to, to David and said, hey, wh why don't we collaborate um, to do a documentary on what it means to be a Black bisexual man? Uh, and David agreed, and so we started to um, uh, started to go to work in terms of um, producing uh, the documentary. Um, we um, and producing a doc a feature film documentary. So if you know about the uh, the documentary world, like producing a feature film is is huge, uh, yeah. even a low budget one, um, and then to um, uh, to do uh, to have a topic that is multiply marginalized uh, has meant that we uh, uh, we were challenged with uh, with funding issues like people who said oh this is worthwhile like we go to the the um, the usual suspects for for documentary film funding and it's like oh well this is important why is this compelling like. Yeah. Does this do these people even exist? Do black bisexual men even exist? Um, so we've taken an approach of uh, of working as we get funding and fundraising to work. Uh, 
Um, so uh, where we're at now is we we completed principal uh, um, filming. Uh, we have some um, uh, um, some catch up filming to do, or some uh, um, uh, some additional filming to do to fill in some places. And we're in the process of uh, creating a, a rough cut. So David cool. uh, David actually just got funding from the New York State uh, Council on the Arts um, to um, to work on a rough cut that we can use um, to get additional funding for full post-production, the bells and whistles, the, uh, um, um, the adding the soundtrack and all those other kinds of things. Awesome. I look forward to seeing it. I hope it, I hope it continues. And it is, it brings up this funding issue. It's like kind of crazy. And I, and I hope, I assume it will change in the future, but it's like in many areas you see that of course we exist. Of course, black bisexual men exist. Bisexual people make up over half of the LGBT community in study mm-hmm. after study that's confirmed over and over half. And yet the funding is like, is something like 1% um, mm-hmm. in the arts exactly. and health in all areas. Uh, it's kind of crazy. I want to ask about sexology and your sex education and like body stuff. Um, Cause that's something that I'm still learning a lot about and, uh, want to learn more. So I I read that um, at Goddard, you co-founded the world's first sexuality studies program dedicated to promoting decolonizing sexuality and challenging the whiteness and Eurocentricity of the field. So I, it's not a field I am very familiar with. So I'm curious, like, how is that field dominated by whiteness, white supremacy, Eurocentricity? And like, what can what can we do to decolonize it? <laughs> it briefly, I'm sure it's a <laughs> yeah, yeah, complicated yeah, yeah. answer. Uh, so, um, uh, like many fields uh, um, in uh, in in the Western Academy, uh, sexology focused only on the reality of uh, of people of European descent. Uh, and so the um, uh, the people who um, that's how people were taught. So it made it more possible for people of European descent to feel like they had a place in the field, mm-hmm. uh, and that and so therefore they dominate the field. Uh, and uh, it's uh, um, although the, historically there have been some uh, Black Indigenous and people of color who have made contributions to the field. Uh, uh, it's been a field that's been uh, dominated by people of European descent. Uh, and uh, now in the last decade, um, there's a new generation of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, scholars and educators and healers uh, in sexology who are committed to decolonizing the field uh, and um, uh, and bringing racial equity to the field. Uh, and... Uh, and stepping outside of the Eurocentric approach to understanding uh, sexuality, love, relationality, and pleasure. So with um, publications like the Journal of um, um, Black Sexuality and Relationships uh, and the uh, creation of academic programs like the one that uh, I co-founded at Goddard College, uh, we are um, not only creating space for the study and development of ways of knowing 
and uh, and arts and culture related to sex uh, to sex and sexuality that are are from a black indigenous and people of color and global south perspective but we're also creating space for black indigenous and people of color um, to uh, um, to find a place in the field for themselves and to know that oh um, this is something that they can study and they can do cool um, and this is, I guess this is kind of related or maybe not, you could talk about both, but I also read you're a practitioner of Tai Chi Chuan, Chi Kung, Hatha Yoga, and Pranayama. I'm I'm trying to get more, I'm, I'm very into yoga these days, but just like vinyasa, I'm trying to get into more meditation and other kinds of things. And you've taught embodied health practices for decades. I'm curious, like how does wellness and these embodied health practices, uh, how does it relate to your sexuality or your experience of sex? How are they intertwined, if at all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So um, practicing and teaching in in those areas, it uh, aligns with my mission to help people own their bodies, Mm -hmm. um, to really own their bodies. Uh, um, I'm also a practitioner of theater of the oppressed. Uh, um, and uh, we have this uh, set of frameworks or or exercises about helping people uh, to listen to what they hear, to see what they're looking at, right. mm-hmm. to feel what they touch. So it, it uh, and, and that's about getting into your body. Settler colonialism, imperialism white supremacy, capitalism, and cis-heteropatriarchy are all trying to get us outside of our bodies, right? We need to be outside of our bodies in order to endure the violence of these systems and in order for them to be more and more invisible. Once we are in our bodies more fully, we become aware of the violence of these systems and they become intolerable to us. So, hmm. so um, teaching Tai Chi or yoga or pranayama, meditation, Qigong, uh, is a way of helping people return to their bodies. And in returning to their bodies, recognize that there are these, this, there, there is this matrix of systems operating that is doing violence to us mm-hmm. and making that violence intolerable so that, so that we act to dismantle those systems of oppression. I, I love that. I think, I feel like I just had a little aha moment you facilitated. Cause it's like, I, I feel like for so long of my life, I was trying to kind of control my body and fit my body in to to what it should be, or, you know, do this, be, feel this, feel that. And it, my coming out did kind of coincide with this interest in yoga and meditation and actually listening to what is going on inside there and Mm -hmm. feeling Mm -hmm. what's there instead of trying to control Mm -hmm. or push or fit some model. Yeah. You were coming home to your body. Yeah. And that that's what this is all about is it is uh, helping people come home to their bodies it's kind of amazing to me that all this stuff is is so connected and it makes so much sense now but it's like this such a fundamental thing of our bodies and our feelings and like as we talked about at the very beginning sex and our desires are all these 
fundamental things that I didn't used to think were connected to politics or like radical, uh, you know, change. But but it is. It's the starting place. Mm-hmm. I sometimes I ask. I mean, I have a million questions. Do you want to talk for three more hours? No. Um, maybe maybe another time. Uh, but I sometimes I do ask. Is there anything on your mind uh, that came up during this that you're thinking about that we didn't have a chance to talk about? Uh, no, I don't think that uh, that there is. I, I think it's it's always a process for me to. Uh, uh, be interviewed or to talk with with uh, with folks publicly about um, about my experience um, because I believe that as bisexual people we have a we actually have a right to our privacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- uh, we have a right to uh, holding things that nobody else knows. We actually have a right to that right? because everybody else has a right to that. Uh, and so I practice this revealing and this transparency uh, as a service to other people out there who have similar experiences so that they can recognize themselves in, uh, uh, in my reflection. And that's, a, a, again, that's an act of love and an act of service. But I, yeah. but I think it's really, really important to inf- uh, affirm uh, that each of us has a right um, to our privacy and our secrecy. Beautiful. Well, I thank you for sharing as much of your story with us as you did. And yeah, it's like, it is, it's this beautiful thing of we need to share this with more people because it's hidden. It's still relatively hidden. Uh, it's getting a lot better lately, but there's still a lot of work to do. Well, thank you for inviting me um, to be in Uh, in conversation with this community and uh, that you've created with the podcast. And I really, really thank you for your work and and your service to to buy folks and, and to community. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you very much. It was really nice to uh, finally meet you and lovely to chat. Peace and love. Two By Guys is edited and produced by me, Rob Cohen, and it was created by me and Alex Boyd. Our music is by Ross Mincer, our logo art is by Caitlin Weinman, and we are supported by The Gotham, formerly IFP. Thanks for listening to Two By Guys. Two